Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Half an Hour of Hope with Babo Mario. <laughs> the Restoration of Grace. And it's a new series on the constitution of the believer. In my latest book, uh, unfortunately not available in English, only available in Italian. Um, 23 revelation articles that transcend any form of tradition or religion and which can help us filter out all that is non-biblical and non-scriptural but only passed down. How to see doctrines, messages from the pulpit, videos, read books or receive any other form of teaching through the lenses of God's love and grace. <laughs> yes. Yes, because if you don't if you don't look at this word through the lenses of God's love and grace, all you end up with is a bunch of law and legalism and religionism. So this uh, constitution is a series of 23 articles that I believe form the basis of what uh, uh, God wants to tell us in this book, okay? And as I said, you need to you need to watch it through the lenses of grace of the grace of God and the love of God. Otherwise, they serve no purpose. The Constitution of the Believer, my latest book, not available in English yet, unfortunately. <laughs> but anyway, very valid. I know the author. Okay, today we're talking about Article One, the first article of this Constitution. And this is what it says. Forgiveness for the Christian is instantaneous, complete, and eternal. First article of the Constitution says that forgiveness for the Christian, for the believer, for the son, is instantaneous, complete, and eternal. Let's read Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Okay, let's... Let's let's split up. Let's let's extrapolate a couple of points from this wonderful scripture. One, you who died, you had died. You were dead in sins. Okay. You who were dead in sins. You were dead in sins. You. Paul clearly makes as makes us understand uh, th that our pre-Christ tradition, uh, the condition that we were in before Christ was not one of defect, lack, or inadequacy. We're not lacking anything. We were lacking life. No, our pre-Christ condition was death due to sin. And as everyone knows, the dead do not need lessons in morality on how to stop sinning. They need one thing and one thing only, and that's life. 
If you've got someone dead in front of you, you're not, you're not going to go and tell them, you better believe, you better believe, you better do this, you better do that, follow this instruction, do that. No, you, you, you must go there with a, with a, with a glass of, of uh, life and pour it on him. They don't need any lessons in morality and other stops in them. They need life. And if, as the Apostle himself says in Romans 7, 9 and 11, it says, Romans 7, Romans 7, 9 and 11, Romans 7, 9, it says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Verse 11, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. So if, if sin was the cause of my death, then obviously my life can only arise from the removal of that sin. Right? If, if, if I was dead, in the uncircumcision of my flesh, in dead in my sins, if I was dead and I needed life and sin caused my death, then the removal of that sin would bring life. Simple enough. Second point, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Without going into details, symbolically speaking, circumcision represented for Israel the seal of their belonging to the covenant made by God with Abraham, the seal of justice obtained by faith, the sign of the removal of sin. So now, we don't want to go into gory details, but we all know that what circumcision means. is the removal of a, of a part of the body that is seen by God as impure, as dirty. And so the removal, the symbolical removing of this represented with Abraham what the removal of sin represents with God. And here's where Paul, a converted Jew, clearly defines this practice in the light of the New Testament. Romans chapter 2. Verses 28 and 29. This is what Paul says. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Please listen. I love the Jews and I love Israel. But please listen to what the New Testament scripture says. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. In other words, your circumcision doesn't make you a Jew. <laughs> In the light of the New Testament, listen to me. It's, this is not Mario, this is the Bible, okay? It's got a red cover, but it's still a Bible. He is not a Jew, is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. It's, not, it's got nothing to do with anything you do to your body or anything you do to yourself. This is something that God does to your heart when you accept Christ by faith. It's a circumcision of your heart, not of your flesh. And in circumcising your heart, God removes the, the part of the body that is called circumcision, removes the sin from your heart. In other words, it is God who sees the circumcised heart, the removed sin, and its justification through faith in Christ. As Galatians, look at this, as Galatians, 
Galatians 6.15 says this. Listen to this. Galatians 6.15. This is, this is for all the ones that follow the Jewish feasts and, uh, and get all involved with Shabbat Shalom and this kind of stuff. Listen to this. In Christ, Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. So whether you're a Jew or, 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 or a pagan or a Gentile or whatever, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean squat. It doesn't mean anything. But a new creation. It doesn't, doesn't serve anything. It doesn't mean anything if you're circumcised or you're not circumcised. And again, I'm sorry. I love the Jews. I love Israel. I've, I've been there. I, I really, I do. I really love it. But please come down from your from your Jewish throne. It's got nothing to do with circumcision or uncircumcision for that matter. It's the circumcision of your heart that counts. And that can only be done by God through Christ. Right, okay. Now, point three. God made you alive within. So, if my problem is the rigidity of a cadaver, <laughs> of a dead spirit, incapable of any reply or reaction, and totally deaf to any form of education, infected and contaminated by sin, what I really need is not someone who wants to settle my position of deafness, <laughs> my position of deafness, but someone who has the ability to bring me back to life. I don't need you to teach me anything. I don't need you to give me books. I don't need you to give me manuals. I don't need you. you must just give me one life. If I'm dead, I don't need your help in terms of behavior. I need your help in terms of life. I don't need you to teach me how not to sin anymore. Nor to give me a very long list of things to do and not to do. Nor to rebuke me for my current position as a sinner. No. I just need you to bring me back to life. And that just what Jesus Christ came to do. John 10 came. I have come so that you may have life and you may have it in abundance. Listen to me. He didn't come to start a new religion. He didn't, he didn't come to start a new belief. He didn't come to start a church. He didn't come to start... He, didn't come, he came to bring life, life. And this is why I maintain, I preached a long time ago a series of messages entitled, The Glory of God is Man Fully Alive. Man Fully Alive. It, 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 I think it was Tertullian. Um, Tertullian that, uh, that uh, was, a, uh, was a, um, a, a, a Greek philosopher, but, but uh, um, a Christian. And he said, uh, he said, the glory of God is man fully alive. That's why God gave you life, an abundant life, so that you can enjoy it. Don't leave this gift wrapped. Unwrap it, enjoy it. The glory of God is man fully alive. Alive. He came to give you abundant life. But we're in lockdown. I don't know. We're in lockdown in South Africa. Thank God for that. I got I got Italian friends in Italy that are locked down in, in flats the size of my lounge. And, and 
and they go from the kitchen to the bathroom to the to the bedroom to the to the to the lounge to the kitchen to the bathroom to the bedroom to the little balcony that's about the size of this table. Come on, we live in a magnificent country. We got beautiful weather. We got the birds are singing. The, the, we got green in our garden. We we can walk out. We can go into the garden. We can roll in the grass. Do something fully alive. Live life abundantly. Okay, now. God, through Jesus Christ, is made up for my lack of life caused by sin. Now, for forgiving us all sins. Okay, now, yeah, I'm faced with the problem because the English language sometimes is very strange. What I mean? I mean, who knows what this very strange and civilian expression, all sins, me. What do you think? What do you think this very mysterious expression means? All sins. Does it mean those I'm aware of? Or maybe the ones I remember? Or maybe those for which I ask forgiveness? Who knows what the true meaning of this expression is? Forgive me if I seem a little sarcastic, but after hundreds and hundreds of religionistic attacks where the concept of forgiveness is downgraded, to something vague, obscure, limp, and conditional. And I, I, I would like to ask all the disparages of true forgiveness, the total one, the, the only one, what do you think the, the phrase all sins means? Maybe. Who knows? It could be that. Maybe. By chance. Perhaps. Who knows? It could be. Maybe it means all sins. Why? Why should we try to make Scripture say something different when it does not adapt to our traditions, customs, and hypocrisies? Why, if, if our denomination says that you can lose your salvation because if you sin too much, whatever sinning too much means, uh, God will take back his eternal life and will say, nah, 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 I'm not giving you uh, uh, life anymore. That's it. Yeah, crazy. No, God is not sitting in heaven waiting for you to make a mistake and, and, and commit sin so that he can go, Behold, Mario sinneth. Squash. It's crazy. It's totally crazy. Anyway, why God's the Bible says all sins, He forgave us all sins. What what do you think it means? Maybe it means all sins. It is written. All sins means past, present, future. Present, past, and future, future, past and present. All sins, all sins, not just the word, not all sins, just for confirmation. Hebrews. Ah, come on and smile with me. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 it says
And if what I say does not fit with the truth of Scripture, then throw it away. But please give me the benefit of the doubt before you throw it away because your pastor said throw it away or because your father and your mother and your, and your children and your, and your uncle and your grandfather and your tradition and your denomination and your community and your church and your district said throw it away. Please check with the Word of God. Check with the truth. And if the truth tells you that what I'm saying is right, please listen. Please listen. Okay. Today... Article number two. Uh, yesterday we've done article number one that said that the, the forgiveness of God is instantaneous, complete, and eternal. Today, article number two that says we are forgiven only because of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. I say it again. We are forgiven only because of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. Hebrews chapter 9. And verse 12. Uh, verse 11 says, Christ came as high priest, so the subject is Christ, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained past eternal redemption. Having obtained eternal redemption. Redemption. Not with the blood of goats and calves. That was what they used in those days, what they used on the Yom Kippur, what they used for sacrifices, and they kept on reminding the worshippers of their status as sinners. Because every year they would go back, they would have to go back and reconfess and repent and redo everything over and over again because the blood of calves and goats could only cover the sin. The blood of the Lamb takes it away. Once and for all. Glory to Jesus. And that, unfortunately, is what most of the churches do to you, my friend. They keep on telling you that you have to, yeah, you need to, you need to repent of your sin, you need to do this. No, you don't. You need to repent because you mustn't be stupid and you must stop your sin. That's why you need to repent. Repent means to make a turn about, change your mind, and stop doing what you're doing. So if you're sinning, stop doing it. But it's got nothing to do with the forgiveness of God. The forgiveness of God was gained and obtained 2,000 years ago on the cross through the shedding of the blood of Jesus. The normal procedure for 90% of Christians, as far as God's forgiveness is concerned, think about it, is to realize that they have sinned, repent, commit themselves to repentance, present themselves before God and ask for forgiveness. Why? Because we have created a God in our image according to our likeness. Yes, in our image according to our likeness. Why? Because what do we do when someone sins against us? We demand repentance. We demand confession. We demand promise of change. And we demand the sincerity. Otherwise, we don't forgive. And so we have, trans we have projected this, this, this God made in our image according to our, to our likeness. We've projected it into the heavenly realm. And now that God demands confession, demands uh, repentance, demands, uh, demands um, uh, promise of change. Demands uh, tears, demands all sorts of things that have got nothing to do with the fact that God in Christ has forgiven you of all the sins. Very similar. The way that, the way that uh, unfortunately, most of the church behaves. 
is very similar to the Roman Catholic doctrine of confession. With the only difference that the Catholic kneels in a confessional box made of wood to, to tell all his sins to a priest, to a sinner like him, who assigns him a penance made out of hard, hard to believe. You know what the penance is? Prayer. Pay, you dirty sinner. Pray. We've got sawdust between our ears. Religious sawdust. It's incredible. On the other hand, the Protestant, what does he do? He kneels in his mind, his mind made of remorse and self-abatement to enumerate all the sins he has committed to a God who assigns him a different type of penance. A penance made of guilt and self-condemnation. But basically, in both cases, the, the situation is the same. In both cases, the work of the cross is totally ignored. And the blood of Christ is completely underestimated. The reasoning behind this type of behavior is the blood of Jesus Christ was not enough for total forgiveness of sins. Oh, we say that. Oh, yeah, no, the blood of Jesus. But then when it comes to, then we must bring something of our own. The work of the cross was not enough to wash me from all my iniquities. I need to do it with the strength of my confession and my repentance. How sad. How very, very sad. But wait a moment, Mario. What do we do with 1 John 1 9 that says that if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all our iniquity? Ah, yeah. 1 John 1 9. The scripture that I call the believer's bar of soap. Please think. Is it possible that my confession could be more powerful than the blood of Jesus? Is it possible that my repentance could potentially overcome the complete work on the cross? Or maybe we are simply following a trail of traditions that have no biblical validity whatsoever. Listen to what the truth says. Ephesians 1 7. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1.14. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Not difficult to understand. Colossians 2.13. You who di you died. Coloss Sorry, let me just read it here. Colossians. Colossians, uh, Colossians, 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 2.13, Colossians 2.13 says, Colossians 2.13, hold on, Colossians 2.13, okay, let me, let me, let me trust, let me, let me, but from memory, I can't find it here. I know, I'm in Philippians, Colossians 2.13, that's why. Sorry, 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 forgive me. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. So Ephesians 1 7, Colossians 1 14, Colossians 2 13, Hebrews 10 7, 10 17. I will no longer remember their sins and I will no longer remember their iniquities. 2 Corinthians 5 19. God has reconciled the world with Himself in Christ, not, not counting their sins to them. And dozens and dozens and dozens of other verses that confirm beyond any doubt that God has forgiven us all sins in Christ. So, Mario, what do we do with 1 John 1 9? Because it is, it is uh, uh, challenging. Okay. Is it, why is it challenging? It's challenging because for years and years and years, for decades, we've been told something that is not right, that is not true. Contrary to what the church has taught for a long time, that verse is not addressed to believers, but to a group of heretics who had come out of the original Ecclesia church. Let me, let me read the scripture, 1 John 2.19. 1 John 